morning we'd like to continue our study in Philippians chapter 2. So let me encourage you to turn there. Philippians chapter 2. If I am driving down the expressway, I need to avoid two extremes. One is driving too fast, and the other is driving too slowly, right? If I drive too fast, I can endanger myself and others. If I drive too slowly, I can also endanger myself and others. And that's why there are speed limit signs, and there is also a minimum amount of speed that you can go on the on the expressway. A person can actually get a ticket for both driving too fast and or for driving too slowly. And avoiding extremes is necessary when we drive, and it's also necessary in the Christian life as well. When it comes to our salvation, sometimes what we can do is go to the one extreme of passivity, that is, doing nothing or just kind of falling back and letting God do everything, or we can go to the other extreme of overactivity, that is, that we think it's all about us. But we need to have a biblical balance of both. Passivity is the idea of what people say in our day, let go and let God. As if somehow we can kind of just let go and, and kind of just float and, and God does the work. And Or another phrase you might have heard is, get out of the way and let God do it. And I've heard a lot of Christians say things like this, and if they're using these phrases in the context of overexertion, then I, I could appreciate that, I might understand I think most of them have the idea of a lazy river. You know, you go to a water park or something and you get on the inner tube and you just kind of get on there and it's a nice day and you just float. And that's, I think, what a lot of people think that the Christian life is like. And that's what they mean, I think, when they say let go and let God. Just kind of get on the lazy river and let God carry you along all the way into glory. We have a song that we sing, uh, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? You know, Will I be carried to the clouds on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas, right? So there's no lazy river Christianity. Um, That sort of mentality is an extreme, and it actually ignores the responsibility that we have to obey as Christians, that we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as we're going to see. The other extreme is activism, that is, You've heard phrases like this, God helps those who help themselves. Or, go as far as you can and God will do the rest. And, and those sorts of mindsets, those sorts of ideas, think that, that we only need God for a little boost. Like if God can just get us started, maybe wind us up a little bit, then, then we're going to do the rest. But that sort of, sort of mentality goes to the other extreme by ignoring the fact that God is behind it all. That God is the one who empowers our actions and our desires. It ignores the fact, the fact that, that we can do nothing apart from God. Psalm 127 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the, ho- builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. Jesus said in John 15 that, that apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so one extreme is, you know, just kind of sit back and let God do it all. And the other extreme is, it's all me. And God has nothing to do with that. So we, I think, need to avoid both of these extremes and instead use the more balanced and, I think, biblical approach of putting our confidence 
solely in God as we work towards greater steps of sanctification, growth and godliness, greater heights of Christian unity in our church. And that's what this passage is about. Philippians chapter 2. Let's read it together. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. I'll read it out loud. You follow along. This is the Word of God. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This morning we're going to see that believers ought to be motivated to build up the body of Christ. Believers ought to be motivated to build up the body of Christ. Now we use this verse Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We generally thinking about it individually, and we're going to talk about that this morning a little bit. But I think the point of the passage is actually talking about it as a church, that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We'll see that. So believers ought to be motivated to build up the body of Christ. Why should we be motivated to build up the body of Christ? Why should we be motivated to build up the body of Christ? Before we look at the motivations, for why we should build up the body of Christ. Let me show you that the main command here is to do that. Look at at verse 12 again. Paul gives us a brief introduction. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, now much more in my absence, here's here's the, the main command of the passage. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. The idea of the, the phrase there, work out, the, the verbal phrase, actually comes from one Greek word that means to produce or to create. It's the same word used in James 1.3. The testing of your faith produces endurance or produces patience. The idea is there, the testing of your faith creates or works out into perseverance. The same idea is used here. Now turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 8, because the Bible speaks very clearly and powerfully about God's sovereign control over all things. God is sovereignly in control of over all things, but the temptation for us can be to become passive. Move this mic up here. There we go. Um, the temptation for us is to become passive and complacent. You know, if God's the one who's in control of all thing, all, all things, then we can just kind of sit back the lazy river idea. But but while God is sovereign over all things, and He is supreme in that way, our responsibility is not unimportant. And that's why the Spirit is teaching us this morning that our actions have real consequences. Look at chapter 7 of Romans and verse 8. And here we want to see this word that's translated as work out. It's also here in verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Um, 
I'm sorry, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So it produced in me. That word produced there is the word that we have translated in verse 12 of chapter 2 in Philippians is worked out. So it worked out in me coveting of every kind. So the point is that our sin produced in us our coveting. That 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 we are responsible. When we sin, it produces or it works out here covetousness. So turn back to Philippians 2. Sin produces covetousness. Con, con, contrast that to verse 12 of Philippians 2. That our work produces what? Look again. The end of verse 12. Work out your salvation. So our effort produces in us salvation. How can this be? Is this not uh, heterodox? That is, is this not one of the, the, the bad doctrines of, of history that people believe that they can work for their salvation? Yet here Paul is saying seemingly very clearly that our work produces or creates our salvation. Now let me be clear that Paul is not talking about our justification. Okay, that, that when we come to Christ, it's a result of our work. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say work for your salvation, does he? He doesn't say work for your salvation. If that were the case, he would be saying that our works produce our salvation. Instead, he's saying work out or produce what God has already worked in us. This is what we were talking about earlier this morning in, in our Sunday school class, that that. It, it follows our good works, follow our salvation. And so here's the command that's given to us. Work out what God has already worked in us. How did He work it in us? Through salvation. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. It was by faith, through grace. By, by grace, through faith. And, and so what God has already worked in us, we work out. We'll see that God is the one who is at work in us in verse 13. Um, but but what we learn here is that there is a process of sanctification that goes on in our Christian life. When we come to Christ in saving faith, God expects us to do something. He expects us to work out what He's already worked in us. It's the principle or the idea of perseverance. Consider a few other passages. 1 Corinthians 9.24-27 Paul says, Do you not know that those who run a race all run? But only one receives the prize. So you run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the game, they exercise self-control in all things. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath. A prize that fades away, right? But we, when we run our race, it's an imperishable wreath that we will receive. And therefore, Paul says, I run. In other words, I live my Christian life in such a way as not without aim, just mindlessly or aimlessly running about. I box in a way, not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We have a responsibility to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, to work out our salvation. Do you understand what Paul's talking about here? We have become partakers of Christ, Hebrews says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Chapter 3, verse 14. So, there, it is true. We have an individual responsibility 
to bring about the results of our salvation. Okay, don't think initial saving faith. Think final saving faith. In order for us to get from, okay, God is the one who does that work, brings us to Christ. He's the one that works in us. All that follows is what He expects us to do. In order for us to get to the final salvation, He expects us to work. So we need to work out what God's already worked in us. So there is an individual responsibility, I think, with regard to our salvation. But Paul is not primarily talking about individuals. Notice again in verse 12, you can't see it here in the English translation, but in the Greek translation you can see very clearly that this is actually a plural verb. Or, or a, a, a plural verb and actually a plural pronoun that follows. So in our translation it just says your. Well, I could be saying uh, your and talking about you individually, or I could be saying your and talking about you plural. So I could say, I'm coming over your house today. And I could be talking to one person, or I could say, I'm coming over your house today, meaning all of you, and I'm not. But um, but the point is, is that in the Greek translation, Paul's actually using a plural pronoun and a plural verb. So what he's saying is, not you individually work out your salvation. You, church as a whole, you Philippians, you all work out your salvation together. And if we think about this command within the context of what Paul has been saying, we will understand this. What has Paul been saying? Turn back to chapter 1, verse 27. Notice, only conduct yourselves. There we get the idea that it is plural. In a manner worthy of the Gospel. And you you do this at the end of the verse says, by standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a unified body coming together in unity that we all work together for this purpose. Chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Well, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if he's talking to one person, right? He's saying to you as a church, you all be of one mind. Be unified together in your understanding and the truth of the Gospel. And then the, the command following this passage, look at verse 14 or actually in this passage that we're studying this morning, but the one following the command we're looking at, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That too is a plural verb. So Paul's saying you all do everything that you do without grumbling or disputing. So all these commands have one thing in common, and it is this, unity within the body of Christ. All these commands that surround this command to work out our salvation, it is unity in the body of Christ. And so here's what I think Paul is saying. The entire church needs to work out its salvation which will result in a spiritual oneness and spiritual health. The entire church needs to work out its salvation, its collective salvation. Now that doesn't limit our individual responsibility. We each have responsibility for ourselves. We're all going to stand before God and give an account of ourselves. But as a church, Paul's talking primarily to the church that we as a church need to work out our salvation and we do this by growing in the unity of the body. And Paul speaks briefly here at the end of verse 12 how we are to do this. Look at the end of verse 12. With fear and trembling. So as a church, we grow in our unity together by working out our salvation, here's how we do that. With fear and trembling. With reverence and awe. 
when you come to a place where you understand very clearly God's presence and that it is with us, that's the time in which you are most responsible. Sometimes what we think is, well, when God is near, that's the time where I kind of just step back, and that's the lazy river idea, just kind of step back and then God does the rest. But, but when we understand God's presence very clearly, that's when we act for Him most boldly. That's when we're most responsible. Let me just give you a few examples of this. In Acts chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, God had just told Paul, Paul, don't leave the city. I have many people for you in this city. What did Paul do? Left the city? Well, if you got many people, you don't need me here. So I'm gone. I'm going to let go and let God. You see how that idea kind of plays out? That's not what Paul did. What did he do? Instead, because he was aware of God's presence, it actually motivated him to do what? To stay there for a long period of time and minister to these people and see them one to Christ. See, when we're most, uh, when we most recognize God's presence among us, that's when we act most powerfully, most responsibly. Daniel nine two and three. Daniel had just been reading Jeremiah's prophecy about the desolation of Jerusalem, and he had found out that it was going to be for a total of seventy years. You know what Daniel did? He didn't say, you know, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Or as a lot of people would say, you know, it is what it is. It's going to be for 70 years, so I, I don't have any, anything to do here. No, in verse 3, Daniel's, it, it says that Daniel prayed and he fasted for the people. And you know what he did? He asked God to turn his judgment away from them. Wait a second. Daniel, Daniel, it's all sewed up. It's all finished up. God's already said it's going to be for 70 years. Why pray? See, when we understand God's presence, God's power, God's control most clearly, that's when we act most, most responsibly. Friends, do you know that God is alive? Do you sense His presence in your life and in this church? Do you recognize His sovereignty over all things? And I would say to you, that should not lead you to sit on your hands or wait and see what God will do. It should lead you to be responsible and to obey His commands with a fervor that you hadn't had before. When we are most aware of God's presence with us, we're most responsible to do what He wants. And so there is the main command. As a church, verse 12, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, But I started by saying, why do we do this? What are the motivations for for coming together in unity as a body. Why should we be motivated to build up the body of Christ through our work? And there are six. Six motivations. I'm going to break them down into two sets of three. The first set of three can be summarized in this way. Believers should be motivated to build up the body of Christ by the things that precede or come before sanctification. We should be motivated to build up the body of Christ by the things that come before sanctification. And that's what verses 12 and 13 are about. But let me first point you back to our passage that we looked at two weeks ago, verses 5 through 11. And here's the first motivation. We ought to be motivated to build up the body of Christ, work out our salvation because of, number one, Christ's example. Paul had just finished talking about the obedience, the suffering, and the exaltation of Christ. And he starts 
with verse 12, with, he starts verse 12 with these words. Look at verse 12. So then. So he's not just, you know, I'm all done starting a brand new topic here. He, he does that occasionally in some other passages, but he normally starts with the word now. Now I want to talk to you about those who have fallen asleep like he does in 1 Thessalonians 4. But, but here he's saying, so then. So he's pointing back to what's already happened. The, the obedience that he will call for at the end of verse 12, which is to do what? Work out our salvation. Grow up in the unity of the church. This obedience that he's calling for is connected to what he had just talked about. It's connected to the obedience of Christ for two reasons. First, because we will all bow the knee to him someday. If it's true that we will all bow the knee to Christ, right? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If that's true, then should that not motivate us to bow our knee now? That's why I say one of the motivations for us to grow in unity as a church is because of Christ's example. The second reason it's connected, our unity with Christ's example, is that Christ was vindicated. He was justified of the suffering that accompanied His obedience. And so will we be. Do you suffer for the sake of Christ? Do you suffer for the sake of the Gospel? Well, Christ did as well. He suffered for the sake of the Gospel as well. And was Christ vindicated? Was He shown to be right in what He was doing? Yes, and it will be clear to all because every knee will bow one day. Well, if you suffer for the sake of Christ, if you suffer for the sake of the Gospel, then you can be confident that you also will be vindicated. You will also be shown to be right one day, even though it may not be clear now. So the first motivation comes actually from the previous passage. It is Christ's example. The reason Paul included the great exaltation of Christ was to, be, to motivate believers to grow in unity. You remember the main command? We already looked at it earlier. Chapter 2, verse 2. Be of the same mind. We do that through humility and we, we, we are humble through the example of Christ. And as we do that, we grow up into unity as a body. This is our goal. So the first reason we seek to work out our salvation, to grow up in our unity, is because of Christ's example. Something that happened before our sanctification. Second reason, it's found at the beginning of verse 12, it is our past obedience. Let's read that. I skipped over it earlier, but I want to come back to it now. So then, my beloved, my beloved, verse 12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So first, you should be motivated by motivated by Christ's example, and then secondly, by your own past obedience, or as a church, our own past obedience. You've already obeyed Christ. You've already seen the benefits of what it, what it means to obey Christ. But you, Paul's saying this, you need to continue doing that and do it even more. Do it all the way until the end. This is a great statement about the Philippians. They didn't just obey Christ when Paul was in town, right? They obeyed Christ when Paul was away. Even in my absence, even much more in my absence, you obeyed Christ. And that's what I want to see you continue to do. You already have fulfilled your responsibility in this area. So why don't you continue to do that and enjoy the benefits of it. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven as you continue to obey. And I would say the same to us. You've already obeyed in great ways. You've seen God work through you and through your obedience. So why not do that even much more? Third reason in this first set, okay, believers are motivated to build up the body of Christ by the things that come before sanctification. Christ's example, 
Our past obedience. And then number three, verse 13, the power of God. The power of God, verse 13. Here's something that we cannot miss. This is very important. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In verse 12, the Spirit tells us to work out our own salvation. That we are to produce our own fruit. To produce the salvation, the fruit of salvation that comes through obedience. And we could think about that and think about what that means for our church and think that is too large of a command. We are inadequate for the task. We can't do it. We can't build ourselves up in unity. We, we don't have the power. But we are not alone. And that's what Paul tells us here in verse 13. That God is behind it all. Any fruit that we as a church produce as a result of our perseverance is a testament to what God is doing behind the scenes. Isn't it? Look at verse 13 again. For. Hey, work out. Produce in yourself what has already been produced in you. Anything that comes is because, verse 13, God is at work within you. God is at work within you. And this should serve as a motivation for us to work more. If God is at work within us, then we should be motivated to, to come together in greater, greater levels of unity. As we learn about the presence of God and are reminded of His promises to be near us and to energize us, it should produce in us a motivation to carry out our responsibility. Think back to Christ's obedience in verses 5-11 through 11 again. God was working in Christ through His perseverance. And here's the point that Paul's making. If God worked in Christ to cause Him to persevere until the end, here's what He's going to do for our church. He's going to do the same thing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the same power that Christ had access to in order to overcome the temptations of this world and to produce in Himself obedience even to the point of death is the same power that's in work, at work in our church. Do you believe that? That's what the Spirit is teaching us this morning. One commentator, Gordon Fee, says it this way, it's not that God is working out our salvation for us, the lazy river idea, but that He is supplying the power for us. So do you see the difference? It's not that He's, he's doing it all, we don't do anything. It's that as we work, He's providing the power, He's supplying the power, He keeps pumping the power so that we can continue to do it. Notice how extensive God is in the process of our obedience. Anything that we do in obedience to God, God is behind it. Notice how extensive, verse 13. Both to will and to work. Both to will and to work. It's not just that He energizes our work, but He energizes our will, our desire to work. You know how He does that? He does it through the process of Renewing your mind. Romans 12.2 Spirit renews your mind. Do not be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As God renews your mind through His Spirit, He is actually supplying the power for you as a church to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this teaches us why it is so critical to be under the sound of God's voice. Why is so critical to be under the teaching of God's Word? If we're not being transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2, 
implies that we are already being conformed to this world. So why does God do this? Why does God supply for us both the power to do the work and the will, the desire to do the work? Look at the end of verse 13. For what? His good pleasure. It's for the sake of His own pleasure. He does this for Himself. In the end, we can't take credit for it. When we get involved in all this activity for God and do all these things for God, and we do it with the proper motives, we can't take the credit for it, can we? We can't say, look what I, I have done. Because it's God who is work, working within us. Believers should be motivated to build up the body of Christ by the things that come before our salvation. Christ's example, our past obedience, and God's power. Now we need to look at the second three and there in verses 14 through 18. Believers should be motivated to build up the body of Christ by the things that follow our sanctification. So there are some things that come before. Christ's example, our obedience, God's power. Those all come before and they're energizing us to, and motivating us to do God's work. But there are also some things that come after our salvation. And we could think of them like uh, rewards. So first, the effect of the Gospel in the world. This would be number four. This is the fourth motivation, number one into this section. Verses 14 and 15, the, the effect of the Gospel in the world. When we do all things without grumbling or disputing, we shine as lights in the world. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So, Here's another reason why we ought to work together to build up unity within our body. Because it's actually going to be, it's going to produce positive effects to our spreading of the gospel in this world. Here in verse 14, Paul gives us a command. And he's talking to the church as a whole. And he's saying to the corporate body, reflect on the risen Christ by handling your tongues. When our churches are full of people whose grumbling and disputing and mildly, uh, are, are mildly different from the grumbling and disputing from the world, do you think we really speak very powerfully about the effects of the Gospel? When an unbeliever comes in and sees us grumbling and disputing just like they grumble and, and dispute? Think about it. If our grumbling is the same as the world and the only difference is that we grumble about different stuff, we're not doing the Gospel any favors. I'm shocked at, at Christians who grumble over the government. They speak as if God is not on the throne. I'm shocked at Christians who complain about their boss in the same way that, that my unbelieving neighbor does. Should we not, of all people, joyfully acknowledge God's control over all things and be happily willing to follow Him no matter how bad our job is or no matter how bad the government is. I'm discouraged at churches that are full of infighting and we're unwilling to forgive. If we have been forgiven, if we recognize the great debt that has been taken from our account and put on Christ, then we will be happy to forgive others. And I think we do a great disservice to the cause of Christ we do a great disservice to the cause of the Gospel that we try to proclaim when we dispute with one another in divisive ways. 
So we need to work on this, I think. Verse 14, do everything as a church. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Notice the result of this, verse 15. You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Remember, this is referring to the entire church. So as children of God, we have a distinctive quality that sets us apart from the world. We trust God, and and because we trust God as a church, we don't grumble or dispute. We recognize that God's in control of all these things. And so let's think about it for our church. If someone came into our church from outside and watched our church for one month, or six months, or one year, could they make a claim that we are a grumbling or disputing church? Is there any evidence that we are impure in our motives and that we are not above reproach in our actions? If we answer honestly, we have to acknowledge that we have some work to do here. I have some work to do here. A Christian contentment, which is the opposite of grumbling and complaining, causes the light of the Gospel to shine to a dark world. Isn't this what we want? See, this is a motivation. This is our fourth motivation for why we, we ought to work towards unity. And one of the ways we do that is by getting rid of all that grumbling and disputing that is so easy for us to get a part of. Notice the next line in verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Here's the alternative. It's the opposite of what we are. They are crooked and perverse and we should expect them to, to live that way. We should expect them to treat one another that way. But that's not the way we are supposed to be. Don't buy into the lie that, you know, we need to be like the unbelievers in order to win them to Christ. So we kind of get the mindset that maybe if I complain about my job like they complain about their job, then maybe I'll build some rapport with them, we'll be buddies, and then I can, I can get the Gospel to them. Maybe they'll be ready to accept. But... But here's something that we cannot get away from as Christians. We are different. We ought to be different. Now, we're not different just for the sake of difference. But we ought to be different because we are to be different because we are sourced in Christ. And you know what's going to win people to Christ is not that you are like them. It's that you're different from them. You don't grumble or dispute. That is otherworldly. No pagan can go through life without grumbling or disputing. Christians can. So the fourth reason we ought to work towards unity is because of the effects of the Gospel in the world. The fifth is found in verse 16. And it is the eternal joy of your leaders. Verse 16, "...the holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." Here's Paul saying, listen, if you want to... Here's one of the reasons you need to build up the body of Christ because one day it will result in my joy as a leader. Holding fast. As you hold fast to the Word of life, as you stand firm in the Gospel, it results in joy for your leaders. Joy that lasts longer than this life. Paul understood that whether or not the people over whom he had leadership whether or not they served God would be a reflection on His leadership, on His service to God. And he was saying this, if you don't hold fast, my service is going to be in vain. It's going to be a waste. But if you persevere, if you grow in unity, it will result in great joy for me. 
Our, our faith is not a matter of private concern. As if our faith only affects us. The expression of your faith will determine whether your spiritual leaders will be able to boast about you one day. Think of the people who led you to Christ. Think of the pastors and teachers who discipled you and prayed for you. Think of me and other teachers who currently are working to see you grow. Your faith is a serious concern to your former and your current leaders. And when your faith triumphs, it will be a topic of great joy in heaven for me and many others who have sought to to lead you. And it will be a matter... It will be a topic of great joy for our Savior as well. Paul wants to be motivated. He wants them to be motivated by his future ability to boast. Now, this is not a proud type of thing. This is a boasting in what Christ is doing through them. Not so that Paul could take the credit, but so that he could boast in what Christ was doing through them. And he's saying, if you fail, I have nothing to say about you. My work will have been in vain. All the work that I did for you will have been in vain. So the effects of the gospel in the world, number five, the eternal joy of your leaders, and then number six, the mutual joy of other believers, verses 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In order to understand verse 17, you need to understand a little bit about about drink offerings. And when we went through Leviticus, we didn't have time to go through all the details And so I think we we didn't really talk about drink offerings a whole lot. But but what you need to understand is that drink offerings were not the main offerings at the altar. We went over the main ones. The drink offering was poured out on top of the main offering, like the guilt offering or the burnt offering. The drink offering was meant to complete the main offering. So if you want to think about like food, I love food, it's like the sauce. It's not the main part of the meal. You You can't just eat sauce, right? It's something that completes the meal. And and that's the way that the drink offering is. It's not the main part. It's something that completes it. And so what's the main offering in this verse? Look at verse 17. If I am being poured out as a drink offering, Paul's saying, I'm not the main meal. I'm not the main part of this sacrifice. Poured out as a drink offering. Upon what? What's the main offering? It is the sacrifice and service of the faith of the Philippians. So here's the main, the main offering that's being offered to God. It is the Philippians' faith and service. Paul's saying, my service and bringing the Gospel to you and helping you to grow, it's actually not the main thing. Your service is the main thing. And so here's what he's saying. If you Philippians don't persevere, if you don't build up the body of Christ to great unity, you, you, the main offering you're going to make my offering a waste. Because you know how good a drink offering was by itself? It was worthless. It's like the sauce. It's of no value without the main part of the meal. Drink offerings could not be offered on their own. And so Paul was saying, in other words, that the current sacrifice that he was offering to God, his imprisonment and possible death would be a partial waste because part of the reason he was doing that was for the Philippians to persevere. If they didn't persevere, all of that effort would have been in vain. So here's the final motivation that Paul gives for persevering. Why we should persevere in our growth in unity. And that is the mutual joy of other believers who are partnering with us in the Gospel. 
One of the reasons that we serve one another is to see them grow as the main offering or, or be offered to God. And if all of our efforts, all of what we've poured into them turns out for their lack of perseverance, for their turning away, then we've wasted some of our time. Now, doing anything for Christ is not a waste. Don't think, well, I only want to work with people who are actually going to grow. Okay, that's not the point here. But, but the point is that He's encouraging them. Your faith is not just individual. It has effects to more people than just your leaders. It has more effect than just to yourself. It affects the mutual joy of other believers. Do you know what our, church need, our, our churches need desperately? We need Christians who are not flashes in a pan. Who are not looking to obey for a short time simply because of the temporal benefits it might bring notoriety and praise and so on. But, but we need Christians who have a long view. We have a long view of obedience. We need believers who aren't looking to take shortcuts. Who recognize that thousands before them have gone on into glory through great trouble and had to fight to win the prize. We need Christians who recognize that it will be no different for them. That that's the kind of Christians we need. How do we do this? As a church, we do this by working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That we grow up in the unity that, that the Spirit is producing within us and recognize that behind it all, it is God who is at work within us both to will and to do for His good pleasure, to His glory. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for these constant reminders in this book that we have been studying about our responsibility to grow up this body in unity. I'm so thankful, even as I was talking with some other members from our church this week, how we have such a sweet spirit of unity in this church. But Lord, you know that we still have room to grow. I have room to grow. And so Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for grumbling and disputing. We ask that you would forgive us for... Uh, being unwilling to forgive, help us to, to be willing to forgive one another. To live our lives and recognize that, that our life as a Christian is more than just about us. It's about the other people that we've partnered together with in the Gospel. It's about following Your example. It's about recognizing the former obedience that we had. It's recognizing the power that You've uh, given us to lead us two greater steps of godliness and unity. Lord, it's about the effects of the Gospel that, that there are in the world as a result of, of our obedience in this way. It's about the future joy of our leaders. It's about the mutual joy of other believers. Lord, give us grace to be able to grow in this unity. And we know that unity cannot come apart from humility. So, Lord, help us to look to Christ and to see His example of humility. That although He existed in, in, in uh, eternity past as God, he, he did not see equality as God as a thing to be grasped. He took on the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of man and became obedient unto death. Lord, help us to recognize that example and learn from it. And as a church that we would we would take great effort in our own individual salvation to see the effects worked out of what You've already worked in us. 
and as a corporate body. Lord, help us to seek to serve one another. Pray for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.